All right. We're in Philippians, and as Jim mentioned, Pastor Wayne is on vacation, uh, so I have the privilege of going through Philippians with you this week and the next two weeks. Uh, Last week, we we covered chapter 1, talking about the advancement of the gospel. We looked at Paul's testimony in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and how he was imprisoned for Christ, and how he used that for the advancement of the gospel. We looked at Paul's convictions in verses 19 through 26, where he made the statement that in, in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, and how we should live with, today with the same convictions. And then we looked at his exhortation in verses 27 through 30, in which he encouraged us to refuse to be afraid and be willing to suffer. These are choices that we as Christians need to make, and we talked about how Paul has called us to do them together, striving side by side for the gospel. I want to re-emphasize from chapter 1 that we are to be like Christ and in that Christ gave his everything for the gospel. The advancement of the gospel is something that should lie heavy on our hearts. To each of us today, we need to examine ourselves, be honest with ourselves. Are we really laying it all down, whether it be our pride, our worry, our fears, our status in other people's eyes? Are we laying it all down for Christ? What are we doing to contribute to people knowing who Christ is? We have to remember, as Jesus told us in Matthew, that persecution from the world would come, but that it would be a sign that we belong to him. The outer afflictions can be for us as Christians something that bring us together, that bond us together, and it's the issues of the heart, the inner issues, that are of greater concern. And that's what we're going to talk about in chapter 2. Paul continues his encouragement to the believers to live the Christian life by pointing to the person of Christ as the ultimate example to follow. So today we're going to be chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, looking at how Jesus, whose attitude we as the believers are to share, lived his life in perfect humility and service. I have it in two sections. The first is going to be the instructions to us as believers, to the church of Philippi, and then we're going to look at the humility of Jesus Christ. In this chapter, Paul encourages the church of Philippi to look at the example that Christ was, the example that he himself, Paul, gave to them, and even the example that Timothy and Epaphroditus were. And he does this because examples to those who live the Christian life are helpful in many ways. They encourage us, they guide us, they, they warn us, they inform us, And no example is more helpful to us than that of Christ. God sent his son, his perfect son, as the perfect example of life lived here on earth. A life solely lived for and in complete unity with God. Paul calls the church of Philippi to exercise unity in their love and humility with Christ as their perfect example of of such a humble and serving life. So at the end of chapter 1, he's warning them about the external conflicts and troubles that will come. And now in chapter 2, he's warning them about the conflicts that will come from within. Paul moves from the persecution of the world to the issues that will arise within their hearts that may keep them from advancing the gospel. So let's read together Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I'll read it. You guys read along silently. I just want to avoid that awkward, like one person starts reading. Yeah, okay. Word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look only, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, we come before you, and we just want to praise you for who you are, God, and what you've done, and what you are doing in our lives. Lord, we are your creation, you are the creator, and sometimes we forget that, God. So I just pray that through Philippians, through the book that Paul wrote to this church that he loved, um, that we would hear your truth, we would hear uh, the instructions that you have for us to live this life as your son did, and God, that we would be encouraged looking at the person of Jesus Christ, the humility in which he lived his life, and be stirred to action. God, that you would show within each of us the ways in which we need to change, Lord, to be more like him. We know that you're continually molding us, refining us, transforming us, God, to be the people that you wanted us to be, that you created us to be. And so we want to give uh, our hearts over to you every day that you continue your work in us and that your gospel would be advanced, God, that we would be instruments and vessels for your truth in this world. So we just give this time to you, and we praise you, and we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So Paul takes the time to address these inner struggles, because the truth of the matter is that where there is dissent from within the church is from within our hearts. And that, when that happens, that can give Satan a foothold into bringing destruction into the believer's community. The persecution from the church can bring a body of believers together and strengthen them, but troubles from within the heart, within the people of the church, can tear a church apart. Like rust eating away at metal before it falls apart, or water overheat before it begins to boil, these internal matters can become bigger and bigger and grow and grow from within without anyone knowing before they erupt in a hurtful and painful way. Foreseeing this issue and wanting the best for the church, And he wants this church to achieve unity in Christ. Paul makes this a personal request to the Philippians in a unique way. Chapter 2, verse 1 is not actually asking the question of whether these attributes and characteristics are found in Christ. We know that they are, and we know the Philippians, uh, they, they know this too. But it rather gets them thinking about their own hearts by pointing to Christ. Paul asks four rhetorical questions here. One, is there any consolation in Christ? Is there any comfort from love? Two. Three, any participation in the Spirit? And four, any affection and sympathy? Again, we as Christians know that there is. We know that the ultimate consolation is in Christ, that Christ provides the most strengthening comfort from his love, that the Holy Spirit is alive and in us, and that Christ knows more than anyone what this, what this world holds for those who believe and share in God's mission 
of spreading his kingdom. We know that these are true, but he's provoking them to think inwardly about their own hearts, their own lives. This pastor put it this way, the idea is that if the Philippian Christians have received these things that he has mentioned, then they have a responsibility to do what he is about to describe. So Paul got them thinking about Christ and how they compare to Christ, how they need to be like him in order to make his request. Again, this was Paul's first church in Europe, so there's a certain bond and affection between he and these believers. He, just, he wants them to succeed. He wants to glory in their growth. In verse 2, he makes his request to, to be like Christ, which will then complete his joy. Again, we see this continuous selfless heart of Paul who's not concerned with his own outcome. Again, he's in prison right now facing uh, trial, facing death. But he's concerned with this church and he wants, he knows that, he's, he's conveying to them that if they do this, he will have joy. Not his release, not his outcome will bring him joy, but their, how they follow God will bring him joy. And this unity mentioned in verse 2 that he talks about is the goal. In verses 3 and 4, the instruction in how to achieve it. Complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So the Philippian believers, he's encouraged them to keep making progress and being of the same mind. And this meant more than just the intellectual agreement. This unity draws on more than just the same belief, but speaks to the different skills and gifts that God has given each and every believer, and with those skills and gifts, how they can be the church together. The church being made up of different people, all with God-given talents. And he, he just wants them to be unified in their lives on earth as well as in their belief. We have, in our own church, people with different skills and interests. And it's amazing to see our church work as a body of believers together. We have teachers in here with God-given skills to be able to educate and communicate truths to, to people. And you teachers and educators are so necessary in the world and necessary in our church. We have those who are carpenters, welders, photographers, and many more whom God has given the ability and mind to see and create wonderful and practical pieces for people to enjoy and to use. And you guys are such a vital part of this world and a part of our church. We have in our church lawyers, doctors, business owners, the list goes on, who God has given skills and gifts to do what God has called you to. And you're a vital part of the world and also an essential part of our church. And all of us together doing what God has meant for us to do with the skills and gifts that he has provided to us, using them to bring him glory. That's the kind of unity that is defined here. In an agreeable and cooperative spirit with the focus on the glory of God. He also mentions loving one another, and this is critical, absolutely vital, because Paul knows that without Christ, our lives will continually be corrupted by sin, and sin makes the heart very selfish, only concerned with ourselves. Loving one another is in direct opposition to a selfish nature. The goal here is a deep abiding love within all the believers that keeps them together. This is Paul's request, that we would be unified in belief and in everything that God has given while loving each other with the love of Christ. He follows his request with instructions on how to accomplish this unity with three things. Number one, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Number two, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And three, 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that first one, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. This verse uh, first addresses what Paul was talking about in chapter 1, verses 15, in verse 15, when he spoke of people doing things out of rivalry. It can be easy to want to progress out of selfish motives, and this happens by considering oneself higher and more important than those around you. The selfish person, person who is out, uh, is out for their own gain uh, can be pretty easy to spot. In the end, they are about their own glory, their own accomplishments, their own status being higher than those, uh, than those around them. They give credit to themselves for the gain in their life. They are constantly putting themselves in the first or best position in whatever situation. They are living for self. And when living for oneself, one is at constant odds with the people around them. You, they're a team of one, and they're a team that will fail. Paul also mentions conceit here. The word for conceit literally means vain glory. The dic- dictionary defines it as too much pride in your own worth or goodness. For some of you, maybe like me, people were coming to mind, these people that are selfish, doing things out of rivalry or vain glory. But before we let our minds travel too far down that road, we must examine ourselves For we are all naturally born this way. We are all sinners. We are all naturally looking out for ourselves. Again, these are issues of the heart that will keep us from achieving the unity found in Christ. Rivalry and conceit can be dangerous for a church. I like the way that Calvin puts it. Rivalry occurs when when everyone is prepared to maintain their own opinion. And once people are deep into the rage of holding by their own opinion... Then it rushes into the direction from which it has entered, pride. Conceit is attracted to the mind so that everyone thinks that their way is best. Both conceit and rivalry put oneself at the top, and before we know it, we are looking down on those around us with pride in our hearts and sin growing within. So Paul says here, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. He continues by saying, In verse 3, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Not only was this countercultural back then when Paul was writing it, but it's countercultural today. The culture tells us today to walk around with a confidence that exudes a superior attitude in every circumstance. We need to think of ourselves as top dog, as the best in everyone's eyes. And we tend to count ourselves as more significant, better, and superior than those around us. But when we do that, we're having a selfish heart. And again, we're looking down on people. Paul speaks of humility. Humility is when one esteems himself less significant than those around him. And this is incredibly difficult to do in life. Yet Christ has called us to do exactly this. And a beautiful thing can happen if we consider those around us above us and not below us. Then no one would be looking down on anybody but looking up towards everyone. And we would have a community where everyone is being looked up to. And that hits home. There's times in life when you know you're being looked down upon and there's a struggle uh, for whatever reasons, being young or being less informed, whatever it may be. But to have the mindset of looking up at people, it's powerful. This sort of outward-looking mentality naturally leads us to a unity among the people of God, a community defined by Christ's love and care. And then in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Paul realized something that we all know today to be true, and that is that we naturally look after ourselves. The ESV Study Bible says that the key is to take on the same level of concern about yourself and apply it to the interest of others, looking to the interest of others. What would that look like to give the same amount of effort and energy towards caring for someone else as much as we try to care for ourselves? If we really start to think about it, it becomes pretty radical. Not only does it go against our nature, but it goes against what the world encourages us to do. And for most people, that would be enough to hear that it's not natural and that the world doesn't encourage it. There's no point in trying to do this. But we as Christians are called to something more, something that costs us more. We're called to follow the perfect example. The radical, this radical love is so rare, rare that Paul proceeds to show its supreme reality through the life of Christ, the only one who lived life in this perfect way. We are called to have a radical lifestyle of looking out for others just as Christ did. And in verse 5, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves. How? Through Christ Jesus. So the Philippian church is to be of one mind, united by love and humility, looking out for the interest of others. And the goal here is that the Philippians would be encouraged towards humility and love through being like Christ. Those rhetorical questions got them thinking about their responsibility to live like Christ. And now Paul states beautifully this in-depth description of who Christ is, who we are supposed to be. So verses 6 through 11 are the humility, describes the humility of Jesus, covers who he is. This section is referred to as the hymn of Christ. In the midst of Paul encouraging them to be selfless and be united in one spirit, he points to the only perfect one. Not himself, not Timothy, not people from the Old Testament, but Christ. And while Paul is describing the persecution from the world and the inward struggle of sin, he points to Christ who dealt with everything from the world perfectly and whose heart through it all remained perfect. This hymn, verses 6 through 11, uh, is not unique. And some believe that the hymn was around at the time as kind of a poem to the believers as a source of encouragement. Um, or that Paul may have been the author of it. But either way, the, the point is the same. It's a beautiful summary of Christ's life and ministry to encourage greater humility and love amongst the church. Furthermore, it does more than just tell people who Jesus is, but it calls believers to be like Christ. As Christians, hearing who Christ is is a call to action for ourselves. And we'll get to that in a bit. The ESV Study Bible says that the Jesus is the paradigm of genuine spiritual progress, not a self-aggrandizing struggle for supremacy, but a deep love for God and neighbor shown in deeds of service. This is the life of Jesus, our example. In this description of Christ, Paul speaks of Christ's humility, or his humiliation, which is one of the two states of Christ, the other being his exaltation. So this state of humiliation includes four aspects of Christ's life. His incarnation, his suffering, his death, and his burial. His exaltation includes his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, seating at the right hand of God, and his return in glory and power. Paul's description of Christ's incarnation, suffering, death, and burial speak to Christ's perfect humility. It starts in verse 6 with speaking to who Jesus was that he was God. And this can be categorized as his pre-existence. Who, though he was in the form of God, 
This affirms that the person of Christ was indeed God. The use of form here means that he was in every way, in every way, God. Like John affirms in his gospel, as we're learning through Pastor Wayne's series, Paul is affirming the true and exact nature of Christ, who shares equality with God. And he says this in verse 6, in direct contrast to what is said in verse 7, where Christ takes on the form of the servant. So we have him in the form of God, then taking on the form of the servant. And this is the first mention of Christ's humility. His incarnation, which is when it says, He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. I want to affirm that this does not mean that Jesus lost any part of being God. This emptying of oneself does not mean that he was any less God. And I don't have the time this morning to go into it, and I can't fully, we can't fully understand it. And I can't convey it in a way that proves scientifically and mathematically true to our standards. You can't have two 100%. Uh, but we can look in his word and know by his character and be rest assured that Jesus was fully God and fully man, submitting to the Father's will, even in suffering to his own creation. Paul emphasizes the sacrifice that Jesus made by giving up all of his kingly privileges to become an ordinary baby bound for the cross. His death, in the next verse, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Dying on a cross was the most humiliating and lowest way to die for a person at the time. Crucifixion was not simply a convenient way of executing the prisoners. It was the ultimate indignity, a public statement by Rome that the crucified was beyond contempt. The excruciating physical pain was magnified by degradation and humiliation. No other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of the person. And this was the ultimate degrading end to the most supreme and majestic life of our Lord and Savior. And therefore the greatest expression of humble obedience to God the Father. One pastor said it this way, Christ humbled himself in his birth, humbled himself in the obedience of being a child to uh, his parents, humble in learning and practicing a trade, humble in the companions and disciples he chose, humble in the audience he appealed to and the way in which he taught them, humble in the temptations he allowed and endured, humble in the weakness, hunger, thirst, and tiredness he endured, humble in his total obedience to the Father. He was humble in his submission to the Holy Spirit, humble in choosing and submitting to death on the cross, humble in the agony of his death, humble in the shame, mocking, and public humiliation of his death. He was humble in the spiritual agony of his sacrifice on the cross. We are to see Christ in his perfect humility and not just recognize the wonderful insane, mind-blowing example that he was, but to follow that example. Hear the call to action and follow in like manner. It's not only the example that he was, but still is. It is Christ's humiliation that leads to his exaltation. In verses 10 through 11, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After growing through all these things on earth, all these humbling acts of service, he is lifted up by God. Paul is referencing Isaiah 45, 24. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in a righteous word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. He humbled himself to death on a cross out of love, which showed his divine nature with God, who is love. It's for this reason that God exalts him to the name above all names. And Jesus is given the power and authority that was not there before, but now has since he became incarnate as both God and man. Christ, who even in his exaltation doesn't keep the glory, but continues to give it to the Father. He continues to be the perfect example to us at every moment, praising God and giving all glory to him. He continues to be that example of perfect humility. So what now? We've had instruction from Paul. We've had the example of Christ. And we as Christians are to hear who Christ is and act. It's not enough to simply know who he is or to recognize who he is. Because in reality, when someone knows Christ, truly knows Christ for who he is, their lives are either drawn towards Christ or go in the opposite direction. Once you encounter Christ, there's no remaining the same. We as Christians are called, we are drawn towards him. We're called to be like him. We are called by Paul here in Philippians to unity, humility, and service. Unity found in Christ and being like Christ with the God-given skills that we have. Humility in our obedience to God the Father in our service. We can't do it without him. We need Christ as our example. We can't live the life that Christ has called us to without Christ himself. Can't do it on your own. You can't be a Christian without Christ. Some people believe that they are Christians but don't need to have that relationship with Christ. They don't need to know who he is. And it just simply can't be. You can't be a Christian without Christ. Paul asked them rhetorical questions to get them thinking about their own lives. And now hear it in this way. Do you experience consolation in Christ? Do we expect consolation in Christ? Those who have an interest in Christ have consolation in him, strong and everlasting consolation. If there is any comfort in Christian love, in God's love to you, in your love to God, or in your brethren's love to us, in consideration of all this, be you like-minded. If you have ever found that comfort, if you would find it, if you indeed believe that the grace of love is a comfortable grace, abound in it. If there is such thing as communion with God in Christ by the Spirit, such a thing as the communion of saints, by virtue of their being animated and actuated by one and the same Spirit, be you like-minded. For Christian love and like-mindedness will preserve to us our communion with God and with one another. That was from Matthew Henry. I think it just so beautifully wraps up making that first rhetorical questions a more applicable, palpable passage for us today to understand how that applies to us, what Paul is really calling us to. After seeing God's incredible humble sacrifice, an appropriate response is praise. Praising Jesus' almighty name for the sacrifice that he made that he gave his life, and that he gave us life through that. 
Christ's example can also be one for the church as we strive together and submit wholly to God's will and humility as a body of believers. And we certainly will continue to praise him together. But before that, what is our application? And it's humility and service to Christ. This is a lot easier said than done. To be honest, this week during preparation, uh, it was really hard. I struggled a lot with humility. Uh, I found pride getting in my way all the time. And not just during my time of study, but at home. Pride throughout the church events in, in the midweek and how I handled myself. Pride when I thought, think about the future and the struggle to accept what God has given me. Even just this week in a conversation with my wife, pride became an issue for me. And I could feel it swell up inside of me. And Paul nails it on the head when he says that, and I was doing this, counting my needs as more significant than those of others. I was doing things out of rivalry and conceit. It's hard to digress in those moments too, to be humble after the pride has swollen you up. It's hard to be humble. It's easy, a lot easier to just keep going down that path of pride. And I was realizing through the study in Philippians 2 that Paul is so serious in his goal to have the church be united in love and of the same mind. What made this week so challenging for me in this chapter is that I know I have to fight being the one doing things out of rivalry or conceit or thinking of myself more than others, counting myself more significant. Those are battles that are very real for me that I have to fight. And I struggle with them and I don't always win those battles. I sometimes succumb to indulging my own will and pushing myself up, looking down on others. And I felt that barrier or distance that it creates with those people and with the body of Christ and even with God himself. That inward struggle can rot away at the heart and the mind. And the unity that we share held together by Christ can be chipped away at because every selfish notion that we indulge in and we don't give over to Christ, takes us farther away from him and pushes us farther away from each other. So reading Philippians 2, 1 through 11, over and over again this week, uh, it was humbling and it was convicting. Just reading who Jesus is and what he did for us and how he lived his life, it was very convicting. Spirit used that uh, to work in me. And he can use it just pointing, just knowing who Christ is will help us see our sinful selves in comparison to the perfect one. Our eyes can become open to the reality of our sin and our need for Christ. It's a beautiful and painful thing to realize one's sin and need for Christ. Painful in admitting and recognizing that you were wrong, acknowledging you were acting contrary to God. To realize that you were the one putting distance between you and other people or you and God. And it's beautiful when we realize the hope that we have in Christ. That Christ forgave our sins, that he paid the ultimate sacrifice on the cross in the most humbling act of love ever. And so that we could have that love. It's beautiful and, it, and recognizing this, this process, it helps, it uh, starts the humbling process within our hearts. And that humbling process chips away at everything you think is awesome about yourself until you see that it's God who made you who you are. I always get hesitant and a little bit nervous to pray for humility because I, it's not easy to be brought, 
be brought back down from reality or to reality from wherever our prideful, sinful minds tend to place us. It takes a cost on myself. And so this week was challenging, even preparing and looking ahead to Sunday coming up here, thinking, and it's true, no pastor is, no one's perfect, none of us are, but just to realize all the things, pride is something that I really struggle with. So how great that God placed this passage uh, in my lap this week. This process of becoming like Christ, exercising humility, is one that I will face while on earth for the rest of my life. I need Christ and I need him every day. I want to be a part of the unity here at this church, unified in Christ and all that he has given us, not being prideful, not doing things out of rivalry or conceit or considering, my, or considering myself higher than you guys around me. Serve, I want to serve humbly with all of you for the advancement of the gospel because this is my call and our call as Christians and we want to follow the example Christ gave us. So in closing, seek unity in the church and be the unity in the church. See Christ's example and be Christ to others. Read Philippians 2, 1 through 11 again this week sometime. Before you start comparing yourself to others or thinking about how you should be or how you know, you're not as bad as you think you are, read 2 through 11, focus on who Christ is, and let the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, work in your hearts and be reminded of the humility that we're called to. Look at Christ's humiliation and exaltation. Praise him for everything that he's done and for the example that he's set for us and pray for humility and be encouraged that this is a process and we're not perfect and pride will always be a thing in our lives but that the Holy Spirit, God still loves us and the Holy Spirit will continue to work humility into our hearts. And I would love, I'm encouraged just like I said last week, I love this church and how this, I think our church is an example of how we look up to each other. We don't, we don't look down on each other for the most part. I'm speaking to myself. Um, but we all need Christ in this. Amen. So let's pray. God, we come before you, Lord, and we know that we are fallen. We know that we are sinners. And God, we also recognize that we can't do it without you. Maybe not intentionally, but we do try. We try to live life to our best, and sometimes that means that we think we can do it on our own. And God, in that process, we become prideful. We put ourselves up on a pedestal, and somewhere along the line, we start looking down on people. But God, I pray that you would help us to see where we can change, where we can be better, where we can be more like you, where we can consider others more significant than ourselves, where we can consider their interests rather than our interests, God, that we can be unified in the gifts that you've given us, God, to glorify you, to be of the same mind and of the same heart. God, we pray for humility. And again, it's not an easy thing to pray for. It means uh, you chipping away at us till we recognize that you are the one that gives us everything and that who we are is because of you, not because of what we've done. But we pray for humility. God, we want to be your humble servants. We want to exemplify Christ. We want to be that example to others. We want to spread your gospel all the time, God, in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts. 
So God, we, we need you for that. We pray that you would empower us, encourage us, and that we would leave this morning uh, knowing you better and knowing how to be uh, like you better. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.